Happy Wednesday, everybody. It's hump day, just in time for another episode of Clerics Wear Ring Mail. Call-ins today. I had a bunch uh, backlogged that I had not had time to get around to responding to, but uh, I don't want the conversation to fall off. I don't want you to think I'm not listening. And so today I've got a little bit of a special treat for you that I like to call a dialogue with Daniel. So, Taylor, what is this Daniel Day that you're declaring? Well, it's not Daniel Day at all. It's Daniel Norton of the Bandits Keep podcast and YouTube and author of the upcoming blog, Thieves Wear Hide. The last couple episodes of the podcast had generated some interest in conversation in the form of call-ins, and uh, Daniel is the most prolific of those callers. So, There was enough content there, uh, enough good ideas that it filled out an entire episode length worth of time. So I figured why not? We'll give him his own showcase special. So without further ado, let's talk a little bit about healing. Hey, Daniel from Madness. Keep calling in. Um, Sorry to hear about your granddad. It sounds like he had an amazing life. So... uh... Yeah, and also that was a very funny joke. So, haha, I will use it. So, he has passed on something to me. But how generous am I with healing? Not very. <laughs> I am, on the record, is hating two magic items in general. One of them is healing potions, and the other one is the bag of holding. They are both trash. You should heal by resting or by the magics of your cleric. Now, Should the cleric heal people in downtime? Yes. Should the cleric just be a heal bot and you don't actually play them and they heal people in downtime? No. They would need to have a good reason to be healing you, which means that you're either their companions or you're donating or you're doing quests. Thank you, Daniel, for your well wishes. Um, And also, I had a couple well wishers uh, ping me privately on uh, Discord and other media. I want to say thank you to you guys also. I am uh, I am convinced that I will see him again. It's just going to take a little bit longer uh, than previously thought. Or that's that's what I told him uh, on the way home from the from the wake, where I called his uh, old home number just to hear him pick up on the answering machine one more time. Anyway, from here, Daniel, I'm glad you liked the joke. In terms of the game content of the call, I'm unsurprisingly, I think we're on the same page, and I'm glad to hear it. Uh, Bags of holding. Bags of holding take away a key element of the game, and that is the uh, package train. So what do I mean by that? If I have 10,000 gold pieces, Gold is heavy. I'm not going to be able to carry all of that out on my own. I may not have brought a mule with me, because despite mules being capable of going into dungeons, they are not the uh, most reliable or most easy-to-protect companions in the dungeon. And more so, uh, the Bag of Holding 
eliminates the need to either have that mule to, or to have the hirelings that I would have had to bring on to actually pull it out. Part of the experience of finding that 10,000 gold piece hoard is hoping it's still there, leaving somebody to guard it, maybe pulling back the, uh, what am I babbling about? Oh, yeah, leaving someone to guard it, hoping for the best, rushing back with a wagon train and figuring out the logistics of pulling the treasure out of the ground. In part, I think that is why the XP occurs, I think rules is written, only when you secure the treasure, when the treasure is back in town or back at home base, because that resource management aspect, that creation of the warband, that is integral to part of the experience. Healing potions do very much the same thing. They take away from resource management, which is a key part of the game. They they mean that well you do you do get to have more more fights, but you are encouraged to have more fights. And when I'm fighting the enemies, I'm not negotiating with the enemies. I'm not playing one faction off the other. It takes out an element of role play in the dungeon. Uh, there's a miscomprehension among some of the folks that I've met who came in to the game later in in history, I guess. So the players who came in on New School Editions in the last handful of years, they don't realize that role play is something you can do outside of town. So if you have the healing potion, it now and I'll say some people are going to be murder hobos regardless of uh, what resources you do or do not give them. But if healing is limited, if you realize that if I get into a fight, I may have to leave the dungeon, I may have to leave that treasure behind, that is going to inspire you to act differently. You mentioned recently on Twitter, uh, you started a thread about uh, alignment languages. The primary reason for alignment languages to exist is to enable the party to communicate with dungeon denizens. Role play is an integral part. Interpersonal role play is an integral part of the dungeoneering experience as it's a way to get out of fighting. It's a way to get around obstacles. It's a way to have other people fight your battles for you. And who knows, it's a, it can be. I remember we were uh, playing the Lost City. I forget the, uh, the B moniker for that. But the ref actually had us, we met up and had a couple good reaction roles with some underground lawful types, and we made allies in the Forgotten City. So we actually ended up having a new home base, which was very fun. I'm on your side with that. So healing potions and uh, bags of holding, any magic item that takes away from something the players would have to have created a creative solution to solve in the past, that is a magic item that you need to be very careful giving to the party because it short circuits aspects of the game that are critical to the experience and the development of those emergent stories that come out of it. And I think you're right on the money for talking about the god who is supporting the cleric needs to have a reason to be, to be giving that cleric spells. That's something that I think got lost in newer editions also. There's not a lot of obeisance, I guess. There's not a lot of, uh, you have an alignment, and I sort of act according to my alignment. Uh, it says lawful good, so I'm going to set the enemy free so they can come back to fight us again later, blah, blah, blah. The bigger thing is, 
your cleric is channeling powers outside of their own capacity. A magic user, a magic user is casting spells. The magic user has toiled long hours to figure it out, and they are naturally selfish. Their goal in life is to be that natural selfish type, and that's their, that's their archetype. And uh, the, the cleric, on the other hand, the, the cleric is tied to their church. The cleric is tied to their temple. The cleric is bound. Their magic is a pact between them and a higher power. So when the higher power doesn't reach in and make changes in their behavior, when the higher power doesn't actually show that it exists in terms of impact the game, then that kind of takes away from it. You're just playing. Uh, you're just playing a wizard with an abbreviated spell list who can happen to wear a plate. But anyway, that's uh, <clears throat> that's my two cents. I may do an episode talking about packed magic, something I've been playing with in my own uh, chainmail heartbreaker. But I will not do that here because this episode is about a conversation. That being said, in in a most contradictory way, I will say I do like things like. Some games have rules where right after a combat, if you have a quick shot of whiskey or take some time to rest or whatever, you can heal back a couple of hit points that were taken in that combat. I also like that hit points come back, uh, you know, with sleep and stuff. So I don't want people to not heal at all. Um, I do look at hit points as as an abstract, and I know that it can be weird uh, <laughs> because they're not perfect. But I think the abstract is fine. It doesn't bother me. It's a fantasy game. It's an abstract. So... I don't look at it as you're actually taking injuries, like Carl's talking about wounds. I actually don't like that. I feel like you're not actually taking an injury until you go to zero hit points. But because all those things are so weird to me, this is why more and more I'm liking chainmail. You're either up or you're down. There's no hit points. You're either alive or you're dead. Every other time you get attacked and you don't go down, it's because you're dodging. The message got cut off a little bit there, but I will say I am in agreement on the chainmails. So I'm trying to get into it. Uh, I'm not playing as much as I used to, uh, and as life's kind of beating me up right now. But there will be uh, there will be an end of the tunnel with chainmail. Well, we'll start with D and D. With D and D games, one of the complaints I always have is, as you level, you get better at hitting, but you don't get better at parrying. Chainmail solves this with the multiple uh, concurrent hits. So a hero, you have to hit him four times uh, concurrently in order to get him. That represents, to me, the hero's innate skill at defending himself. Conversely, I posited the same argument on an online forum, and the rebuttal was hit points, because it's an abstraction that represents part of your parrying. My snide remark was, well, what, if I parry a dagger, why can it take up to four days for me to recover from parrying? To which they replied, muscle memory. And it dawns on me, well, maybe maybe that does make sense, because I have done athletic things before and felt kind of off the next day as a result. Uh, hydration, getting old, what have you. So, eh, it's there. It's a fair explanation, but uh, I don't like it. So I don't like it as much as I like the concurrent hits approach. Though, I do kind of like the idea of the muscle memory, because that implies that our shot of brandy might, uh, you know, heal us up. I'm going to have to try this out. We'll go play uh, We'll go play some baseball, get myself nice and sore, and then uh, drink it up the next day to forget about it. Sounds, sounds like a great plan.
I agree that, uh, right, Tim Cask, what he's talking about, and even Gary says it in the, the first edition of the Medicine Guide, that hit points are not strictly meat. So then healing doesn't, you know, the idea that healing kind of doesn't make sense, especially clerical healing. Well, it's all how you think about it, right? Could the clerical healing be the cleric is blessing you and you're finding inner strength. So you're getting back that second wind, right? It doesn't mean they're actually touching your wound and healing it up. It could mean that, or it could mean that you're exhausted and the cleric's words of faith are, are bolstering you. I can think of like, uh, for instance, Tales from the Loop, where when you take the conditions that you take in order to heal from them, one of the main things you do is you spend time with your friends or with your uh, family or the person that you, you you get recuperation, basically. I think Call of Cthulhu does something similar, right? I must not be a Tales from the Loop character. Whenever I spend time with my family, I feel more exhausted coming out than going in. <laughs> hey, Taylor, Daniel Banis Keep. Um, you're talking about the boulet and the horses and everything with Joe. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that uh, it all depends on how it's introduced, right? If the players pick up something that's awesome and then the next adventure, the DM clearly doesn't want them to have it, so they introduce some monster to take it away, that's kind of crappy. If they find that they want to just keep introducing new types of monsters and that monster happens to take out the horses because that creates a new interesting challenge, I think that's fine. So I just think it's how people say things. And, you know, sometimes people will just make an, uh, a comment a short sentence comment, especially these these older guys talking about the olden days, and people just ride on it like that was the exact thing. Like somebody probably said, oh yeah, we made those because horses were too powerful. But was that really the reason? Or was it because it created an awesome adventure where the character said to make a long distance journey and the horses were super important. So this created now uh, something exciting for the players to have to deal with in order to keep their horses alive. You know, to me, I think that's a much more interesting. You know, obviously it depends on what kind of campaign you're running, but like, for instance, you start a campaign and the, the player characters are going into dungeons and they can't take that much treasure back because they can only carry so much. So then they decide to get mules. So they get the mules and that's great. Um, but then they realize that when they go into the dungeon, maybe after a couple of times, one of the mules ends up dead when they're gone. It was attacked by wolves. So now they think, well, okay, now we're going to need to hire some men in arms to watch the donkeys while we're inside. And this just keeps building the campaign and adding challenges to the players. It's not, aha, they found something out, so let's screw them. It's more like layers of interest. You, it, once, if somebody, at, at a certain point, obviously, once they become powerful and they have enough henchmen and stuff, that stuff becomes more hand-waveable. But in the beginning, that's kind of part of the fun. Can we afford to pay the henchmen? Can we afford to buy more mules? What can we afford in order to get in this dungeon to get as much as we can as far as treasure? At least that's how I like to play. Absolutely is part of the fun. Uh, hire, hire hirelings, work through the mules until you get to the point where you're playing an accountant instead of an adventurer, at which point you can hire an HR department and keep going. More seriously, that probably ties in, I wonder, to tales of the original TSR crew getting letters about what to do after 10th level, and they were surprised by it because they always retired the character and went back and uh, started, started over, started a new character. Fun, fun thought. A progression. So new challenges to keep it fresh. Oh, yes. And, and I get from now I've, I've gone further. So I should listen to the whole thing first. Uh, Joe's final, I think, final statement about uh, they take it away. That I don't think, again, I was not there, but based on stories that I've listened to from the guys back in the day, they didn't do it to take the horses away. They wanted them to have horses. What they wanted was for them to earn those horses and, and show that there was a challenge. It wasn't just like, okay, we have this now, we have this magic item, we have this horse, we have this whatever, we can just press the win button. 
there was always going to be new challenges. And also, when you talk about creating new monsters, you got to put things in context. When the boule was created, there wasn't a whole lot of monsters in D&D. Everybody was creating new monsters all the time. It's not like you have a book of, you know, 6,000 monsters to choose from when you're talking about, you know, the early 70s or the, I guess the late 70s, early 80s, I should say. But you know what's weird? I think I'm, I'm a pretty hardcore DM. I don't think I've ever had a TPK. Hmm, interesting. Maybe I got to toughen up. Hey, there's a first time for everything. Hey, and uh, you got to use TPK if you want to spell... Uh, okay, I, I, I'm going to work on my spelling game and get back to you on that one. Editor Taylor chiming in. Now there's an interesting idea. I wonder how many of my listeners have TPK'd and what their favorite TPK was. Maybe I'll do a contest... Uh, random drawing. Those seem to be all the rage these days. Uh, be on the listen out. Details to come. Okay, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to answer all of your questions <laughs> right this second. But I will say this. I was thinking as I was listening to the rest of this that, you know, the difference to me between adversarial and adversary, if we're going to put it that way, is whether you are challenging uh, or, let's say, being adversary to the players or the characters. That is... If you're doing stuff that just makes your players not have fun, oh, I'm taking away Bob's sword because he uses it too much. That's adversarial. I'm taking away Sir Lancelot's sword, whatever, because this happens in play and it's challenging and he'll have other fun things to recover or maybe quest to get it back. That's being an adversary. Like, I think you want to put constant challenges in people's way, but if you're doing it at the expense of the players having fun, then you're adversarial. So that tells me that Gygax was probably more adversary because obviously people kept coming back. So I guess in the many messages, I'll try to make it super simple here. You've got to read your players, right? Again, if the players think, going back to the belay, if the players think that that's exciting and another challenge that the horses get eaten, then that's cool, right? Um, if you keep doing things like that and they just get aggravated like oh come on man every single time we do something now you're you're being an adversary and honestly in a dm like that you're probably going to lose your players i think you'll know hopefully you'll know pretty quickly <laughs> if you're an adversary old dm or not because you won't have players i mean but if you could if you don't challenge your players if you make it too easy for them i think you might also lose players people become bored at least in my experience in games where they don't get challenged so you want to challenge your players you want to put challenges in front of them, but you also want them, you know, the way I look at it is I root for my players. I want them to win, but I want them to earn it. And I think when they beat a bad guy or whatever in, in my campaigns, they really know, yeah, we did this. Especially now. So when I was first getting into the hobby, I had a nightmare of a time finding people to play with uh, just because there wasn't this uh, massive internet and uh, Discord. There weren't massive communities of players that I could draw from, and I went through several groups of different friends uh, who weren't interested or who didn't jive. And anybody yet yeah, now, it's you, yeah. If you're a, if you're a bad GM, you will lose your game, your your players in a heartbeat, and that goes both ways. So if you're mistreating your players, uh, they'll ghost you like in the middle of the session. Okay, I'm going to the bathroom. Oh, gone. But then if you're also not challenging them especially in online play uh, when you have the roll 20 in this window and you know the game master's kind of watching the, the the vtt my uh, i may just put uh that 
webcomic or that other game, that my solitaire game, up in the same monitor that I know my webcam's in front of. You don't, and you as the DM may not even know I'm not paying attention anymore. So now, admittedly, sometimes a good good DM is going to uh, a, a better DM is going to make sure everybody's interacting with the game, make sure everybody has a say, says something once in a while. Um, that may be a way to help counteract that. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that not only are you competing with other DMs these days where you weren't before, but now you're also competing with video games. You're also competing with the news sites. You're also competing with, uh, I don't know, memes, you know, for the 5e players. I rib a little bit, but the moral of the story is because there's, there's an ample amount of players, there's an ample amount of distractions. If a player is feeling mistreated or if a player is getting bored, nope, uh, they're on out of here. So, and I think that ties into why in terms of truly adversarial GMs, I don't think you see them as much anymore. They have lost their players. <laughs> and all the all these stories are coming from pre-internet days. Food for thought. One another thing that's important here is that you've really got, I guess this is a common theme throughout all RPG stuff, is you really got to be in communication with your players. Because you might think that it's fun to, let's say, again, have somebody's leg be chopped off or whatever, and even in the moment they might be like, oh, cool. But, you know, you got to kind of talk to them between games and make sure, hey, are you okay now that your character is like this? You know, what can we do? Do you want to switch characters? Do you want a quest to get it, you know, the leg put back on, whatever? You know, you want to do things that are going to be fun for the players. And that to me is being, you know, a good GM or a, D or a player's GM. It's not letting the players, quote, win, but it's allowing the, it's, I should say, it's not letting the characters always win, the player characters, but allowing the players to always have fun. So if a player doesn't appreciate, you know, playing a character that, that lost their ability or, or if they're getting pissed off because every time they, they get horses, they get eaten, then, you know, you got to change your strategy because you're friends. So in order to cross-pollinate, uh, as I usually do, I'm listening to Evil Jeff over at Minions and Munion Musings, and he's been talking about the BX Companion the last bunch of episodes, and he's on the adventure part now, well, I'm there, right? and he's talking about how they are adding this extra environmental stuff, Arctic, uh, swamp with methane gas, deserts, starvation, stuff like that, and then I thought to myself, yeah, and when you went from basic to expert, they added various outdoor hazards and other things you would do when you get to those levels. And I think that kind of connects to what we're talking about. It's like, as players progress through the game, you can add things. Yeah, swamps always had methane gas, or Arctic was always cold, but you didn't introduce that to the players until it became something you wanted to add to the game. It's not adversarial to add these things, it's just adding more layers of intrigue and more interest. So, I don't know, I thought that was kind of interesting. So I had been listening to these and replying to them in order, uh, just on the app, add to episode, play, listen, respond, add to episode. And I double back on these two because they seem so appropriate, one together, but two in reference to what I said earlier. In the pre-internet days, it was much more difficult to find a gaming group. And when you did, you wanted to stick with them. To be truthful, 
on the internet, it's hard to find a good gaming group. To my experience, the people I play with online, I count as my friends. Knowing that, knowing that the game is a conversation, an experience, a time to be had, a memory to be made between friends. The difference between an adversary and an adversarial referee is kind of predicated on the maintenance of that relationship. I don't think that it's the responsibility of the referee to make sure that everyone at the table is having fun. I do think that having fun should be a natural consequence. And if you have a player who is not having fun or consistently has has problems, then you, you may want to reconsider the approach because the, the game at that point is not having its desired outcome. Like we'd already talked about a little earlier in the episode, if nobody's having fun, then there pretty soon won't be a game. That just about wraps up our conversation for this episode. Touched on a lot of great topics there. I hope that we sparked some thoughts on the listeners. And thank you, first and foremost, listeners, for tuning in. And thank you, Daniel, for the absolute wash of call-ins. I know that uh, some folks get apologetic for sending in a bunch of material, but I will reiterate, uh, I accept as many as people are willing to give me, because the more you send me, the less I have to think to produce the content. Teasing a little bit, but absolutely thank you so much uh, for your calls. Thank you so much for diving in and answering those questions, and thank you for getting me to think about some stuff and talk about some stuff that I don't know if I would have thought about or talked about otherwise. In either case, delve on, everybody. Delve on. Wearing Mail Podcast is adapted from Pursuing Darkness by artist X Take Rux, released into the public domain and made available on freemusicarchive.org. Sound effects used in the making of this product retrieved from mixkit.co, used under the Mixkit sound effects free license, or from soundj.com and used in accordance with the soundj.com terms of use. Segments recorded within a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device in conjunction with local vehicular safety legislation. The Clearest Wearing Mail Podcast is an independently owned and operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This license, which is kind of like Creative Commons, except licensing. Clearest Wearing Mail does not ascribe to nor endorse views or opinions expressed by Collins, guests, or even the host, unless you think they're awesome, and thus does not assume any liability regarding the consumption or distribution of this podcast. By listening to the Clearest Wearing Mail Podcast, you agree to the provided term. Parties with questions regarding these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to reach out to Clearest Wearing Mail at the prescribed methods provided on the Clearest Wearing Mail blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to go suck an egg.